Good morning to you all. It is a pleasure and an honor to be with you this morning and to teach on the Word of God. I want to thank you on behalf of my family for the great love you show us when we visit in town. We feel so special here. And I'll mention, too, that my daughter Ann and I were on a college tour in April, and we're here for Sunday, Easter Sunday. And it was one of the highlights of our trip, a special, special time. So it's wonderful to see God working in your midst and to be with you. And also, I'll always remember the prayers and the financial gifts you all made to help start the church in Mooresville, North Carolina, Harbor Presbyterian Church. And so... On behalf of that church, on behalf of their current pastor, who's a good, fine man, and certainly on behalf of myself, I thank you for that. Well, this morning, we're going to study what the kingdom of heaven is like. And I would ask you, please, to turn to your Bibles in Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to read a parable that Christ gave. Or you can look at the Bibles in the pew in front of you, found on the bottom of page 818. And while you're turning to Matthew chapter 13, let me ask you a question. How would you describe the Grand Canyon to a person born blind? It would be difficult, no? Well, you might describe the Grand Canyon by comparing it to something that is within the known experience of the person born blind. For example, you might say, imagine a hole so wide that it would take hours or even days to walk from side to side. Or imagine a hole so deep that if one were to fall in it, perhaps it would take 30 seconds to reach the bottom. The blind person would be familiar with walking, with the passage of time, and with falling. And so you would be communicating the unknown sphere by comparing it to a known experience. Well, if it's difficult to teach on something in this world to a person of this world, imagine the task Christ had of teaching on the kingdom of heaven, the eternal spiritual realm of God's rule to people in this world. Well, he did so by comparing it to things that were known and experienced by the people on a daily basis. In Matthew chapter 13 alone, Jesus gives six comparisons of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And today we're going to look at one of them found in verse 24 and following. So as we study this, again, we want to remember this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And we will take the passage just a little bit at a time. So I'll begin with verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. We're introduced to a landowner who sows good seed. Now, I would tend to presume seed would be good, but I guess that's not always the case. When I go to buy grass seed, it'll say on the bag 99.99% pure grass seed. But I guess today you could buy seed that had undesirable seed mixed in it, or perhaps you could buy seed that is old so that it would not germinate. But this is good seed. Now, it's not grass seed. This is not to adorn the home. This is the staple of life. This is wheat seed. And by the production of wheat, this is going to provide food for the people in the gentleman's home. It's going to provide food for his servants, for his livestock, for his poultry. And if taken to market, it's going to provide income. It's going to be a means of exchange to provide for his family, for his household. Verse 25 
But while his men, his servants, were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed wheat weeds among the and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Here we're introduced to a foe, to an adversary of the man who sowed good seed. And what this foe does is not just a sick joke, it is life threatening because it is going to threaten the production, the yield of the wheat, because it's going to compete for soil and sun and rain, and it could wipe out food for the man's household and for his livestock. This perhaps was darnel, which is related to wheat, but it produces a poisonous grain rather than an edible one, and it was against Roman law to plant this to avenge. And so this perhaps depicts a real-life situation. Well, what did the enemy hope to accomplish by planting this bad seed? He's not just wanting higher wheat prices at the marketplace. He is doing this in hopes of bringing ruin upon the household of the man who planted good seed. He wants the downfall of the man who planted good seed. Verses 26 and 27. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Well, I suppose the servants were perplexed and maybe fearful when they saw the weeds. This could threaten food for them. Or perhaps the master of the house would blame them for the weeds in the field. They knew he was a man who sowed good seeds. They come to him concerned and say, how did the weeds get there? Verse 28, the first portion. He said to them, an enemy has done this. He's a wise master and he's able to discern the source of the problem. He recognizes that it's the work of an enemy. And he does not lay blame on his servants. Middle of verse 28. So the servants said to them, said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The field owner conceives a plan. He is going to have the wheat and the weeds to grow together. The servants thought perhaps they could try to root them out, but the farmer is knowledgeable and he knows a heavy infestation of these weeds would only uproot the wheat in the attempt to do selective weeding. And so these weeds are going to grow with the wheat, not for a couple of weeks, not for a couple of months, but for the entire season. And then the servants are to collect the weeds at harvest and tie them in bundles. And they're not just to throw them to the side, lest their seeds reinfect the land, but they're to throw them into the fire. And then the wheat, which has been scattered among the weeds, is to be gathered together and brought into the barn of the landowner. And what's the purpose of the landowner's plan? It is to preserve and to save the wheat. And Jesus says... This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, we're especially blessed with this parable because the disciples, a little bit later, seek private audience with Jesus and ask him to explain in particular this parable to them. And so we're going to skip to verse 36 and following in here, Jesus' explanation. I'm glad they asked. Makes my job easier, doesn't it? Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Before we begin considering the meaning of this parable, I first want to make a corresponding point, and that is that Scripture has a right interpretation, and not all interpretations are right. You will hear some people say, well, the Bible can mean whatever you want it to mean. The Bible says whatever you want it to say. No, people may say what they want to say, and they may try to make Scripture say what they want it to say, but Scripture has a right interpretation, and not all interpretations are right. For example, in our parable, if you say that the one who sows good seed is anyone other than the Son of Man, of Christ himself, you don't have an alternate interpretation, you have a wrong interpretation. Or if you say the enemy who sows the weeds is anyone other than the evil one, Satan, you don't have an alternate interpretation but you have a wrong interpretation. So especially if you're in high school, if you're in college, remember that. It is our delight, it is our privilege to read the Scripture and by the context of all the Scripture and by help of the Holy Spirit to discern what it is saying because Scripture intends to say and in fact communicates what it wants to communicate. Okay, now with that in mind, let's note several things from verses 37 through 39. The first thing to note is this. You and every person belong to someone. Believe it or not, back in the early 80s, Bob Dylan said he had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, and he put out an album that was very evangelical. And one of the songs he wrote and sang said, It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to save somebody. And he was exactly right. There is no third-party, neutral planter here. Jesus says here, you have the sons of the kingdom, and you have the sons of the evil one. The sons of the kingdom are those who belong to Christ, not only in profession only, but in sincerity and in truth. And he says the weeds here are the children of the wicked one. Now, I personally don't know any Satan worshipers, Although I was very surprised in Shelby, North Carolina, to see Adopt a Highway by the Wicca Society. I'm like, get out of town. Shelby, North Carolina. But what is being talked about here are largely people that are around and about us, our neighbors, people that we know and love, about whom the scriptures say of these unbelievers that Satan has blinded them so they cannot see the light of the glory of Christ. They may not even acknowledge Satan or believe in him, yet are blinded by him and frequently do his bidding, and our hearts go out to him. You belong to someone. Jesus told his disciples, you are to pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven. 
And while he was so gentle with those who approached him, with his fiercest opponents, he said, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Secondly, let's note from 37 through 39, and this is a a major point in this parable. God's plan is for his people and those who are not his people to live beside one another until the end of the age. The good seed is scattered. So are those who belong to Christ. They're dispersed here, there, and yonder around the world. As the seeds here share the same soil, the same rain, the same sunshine, so there is a mixture of those who belong to Christ and those who do not around the world. Now, God could have separated the two long ago, but his plan is to let all remain until harvest. Now, we are to separate ourselves in one sense in that we're not to partake in, we're not to join in evil. But Christians should expect, and in fact even pursue, regular contact with the unbelieving world. And good stuff comes out of that, marvelous stuff, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But it also is fraught with difficulty, and let's consider that at first. Just as the enemy came at night to spread bad seed, so Satan looks for opportunities to disrupt, to tempt, to try to choke out your Christian wall. He is the enemy of all that is good and right. He is the enemy of the glory of God and the comfort and happiness of God's people. And I think you feel it at times. When we receive news of what went on in Colorado, that is evil beyond imagination. And we cry, how long, O Lord? How long until Christ comes? Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But even in our world, we feel it. In 2 Peter, Peter describes the life of Lot back in the book of Genesis, who was living in Sodom. And Peter said this about Lot, that his righteous soul was tormented day after day, that he was oppressed by the sensual conduct of lawless lives around him. Where is it for you? Is it at your place of work? Is it in your neighborhood? In your extended family? I hope so, but is it in your marriage? Where you just long for the aroma of Christ to be more present. Imagine those who live in countries where there's great persecution. Or just flip through the channels on the TV. A couple of weeks ago, we were at the beach, and my 12-year-old daughter, Sarah, was swimming in the ocean, and about a one- to two-foot shark swam near her, and she bolted out of the ocean. But she was strong and courageous and went back in, and something bumped her leg. And she said, that's it, and ran out of the water. There are times when the sharks of life are present, and perhaps you've been bumped, or perhaps you've had a bite taken out of you, and you think, that's it. But where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to flee to? Now perhaps you can find some refuge and a listening ear of someone who loves you or favorite lasagna recipe or a 
two-day vacation, but there's no place you're going to go in this world that's paradisical because until the harvest, God has us scattered in a world where we are to be in the world, but not of it. Sometimes like plants in a field, we just can't get up and walk away. Now, why would the Lord have it that way? Well, I certainly wouldn't want to conjecture on the mind of the Lord, but where he's revealed to us his intentions, that we can study and affirm. Why would the Lord have it that way? Well, let me ask you this. What would it be like if the early Christian church had not scattered under persecution? If Philip had not found himself beside the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch? What if Strong Tower Church were not in its neighborhood? What if never in your life had there been a Christian that you would know? What if there not had been someone who brought the gospel to someone who brought the gospel to someone who brought the gospel to you? You see, being scattered in the world as Christians, we are given a very noble task by God and that is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. If you leave wheat in the ground to grow long enough, what does it produce? It produces fruit. And Jesus told his disciples, I send you to go and to produce fruit. In Ephesians chapter 2 it says, We were created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. And so when we live in a world that's filled with a great deal of darkness... The news we have, the hope we have, is too great to hide. And so God commissions us to be in that world for the good of that world, for God so loved the world. Listen to this verse from 1 Peter chapter 2. This is verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And here Peter's referring to Gentile unbelievers. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is saying here that as you live a godly life before unbelievers, it's going to be met at times with them speaking against you, speaking evil of you. But as they continue to witness it, God, by his gospel, by the word and by the Holy Spirit, will be pleased to illumine some of them. So that on the day when God visits us, when Christ descends, they themselves will glorify God. So your life has a most holy purpose, and that by living among unbelievers and living an honorable life before them, God, through that and his word and his Holy Spirit, will bring to himself the most corrupt of people. And then when Christ comes... They will not cry out for the mountains to fall upon them. But with that hope that you have, they will share and glorify God. And when that happens, when, those, when folks around us come to know the Lord, we realize the difficulty of this life, of it being mixed in the world, is all worth it. When you hear restorers of redemption from the ministry at Strong Tower, 
It's all worth it. When you hear about people in your own midst here in First Presbyterian coming or being more deeply rooted in the Lord or seeing children affirm the faith they were taught, it is all worth it. Lastly, note from these verses here, verses 37 through 39, that God will preserve you. Living in this world is very difficult at times. There are sharks, there are temptations by Satan. But how much wheat was lost in this parable? None. And Jesus said, I came to do the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Dear friend, you can be courageous living in this world and being in the unbelieving world as an ambassador because God is going to preserve and to keep you and raise you up on the last day. Now let's continue reading the interpretation that Jesus gives. Verses 40 through 43 read, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. First, I want you to note from these passages, from these verses, that this age will close with a harvest day with the day of judgment. The English commentator Matthew Henry said, This world will have an end. Though it continue long, it will not continue always. Time will be swallowed up in eternity. And Jesus teaches us here in this parable that at the end, at this harvest day, God will employ his strong, swift servants, his angels, to do his will. And this is the ultimate turning point where the activity of Satan alongside the growth of the kingdom will be brought to an end. And it points out here that the children of God and the children of the evil one will be identified by their fruit. The true nature of each plant is identified ultimately by its fruit, so it is with each individual at that harvest time. The children of God will not be saved by their fruit, by the virtue of their fruit. They're saved by the mercies of God, but they will be identified by their fruit. And those who belong to the evil one will be recognized by their fruit. Those who do not give glory to God by their lives, by honoring his son, who are stumbling blocks to others. It says, and this is hard stuff, but it's what the scripture teaches. They will be cast into a fiery hell where there will be great distress and misery forever. But ah, on the other hand, God's people made righteous by the grace and mercies and work of Christ will be gathered together into the Father's kingdom. Once separate, once in this world scattered, they will no longer be scattered. This morning at the 8.30 service, I was waiting in line with the choir and St. Ponder came up and grabbed my cheek and she said, I raised this boy. I thought, where can you go at age 49 where a pretty woman grabs your cheek and says, I raised this boy. You can only do that 
home, right? At home. And when the Lord gathers us into his kingdom there in heaven, we will at last be home. And we will be known. All the saints from Old Testament, New Testament, will be gathered into a great assembly, and we will be done with the stumbling blocks and temptations of this world. We'll be done with the pain and oppression and weakness and infirmities and reproaches and disgraces. And I love how it says we'll shine like the sun. If you look at Philippians chapter 2.15, it says that in this present age, we are living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which we shine like lights in the world. Well, that's great. We're lights in the world. I don't know what wattage I am, but I'm a light in the world. You're a light in the world. But when we go to the consummated kingdom of our Father, we'll shine like the sun. And our bodies will be made like Christ's glorious body. Our sanctification, our moral purity will be complete. Our declaration of forgiveness and not guilty before the throne of God will be made public. God will announce our record of service for him and our sufferings for his name. And God will own us publicly as his children. Oh, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And Jesus concludes this parable by saying in verse 43, second portion, he who has an ear, he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus is not calling here for a shallow or superficial understanding. He is calling us to apprehend and explore what the kingdom of heaven is like and all these implications. And in conclusion, I'd like to say a few words to any unbelievers, non-Christians that are here, and then ultimately to believers. If you're a non-Christian here, I want you to know I'm, I'm thrilled you're here. And I'm confident everybody else who's here is thrilled you're here. And we want to love on you, and we want you to know the warmth of our love. I also want to make clear that this parable speaks to the profound importance of love and faith and obedience to Christ. It makes clear that God as a righteous judge will, in the end, judge and punish evil. And we, all of us who've done evil, must either suffer that penalty ourselves or, to avoid it, we must put our faith in the one who took the penalty for us. Jesus said of himself that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And on the cross, Jesus, who never sinned, suffered the penalty for the sins of others, and in doing so satisfied God's justice. Thus that ransom... And that power to illumine your eyes to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, he offers by way of command to you. Look to the Son of Man. Look to Christ. Look to that ransom. And be saved and preserved forever. For the believer, 
First, during this interim time, where we're in the world and not of it, be patient. James says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Secondly, produce fruit. Let your conduct among the unbelieving world be honorable. And may many glorify God on the day he visits us. And lastly, since he is going to visit us, keep looking up. The English Puritan Thomas Watson said, We are more sure to rise out of our graves than out of our beds. Thanks be to God.